in the condemned cell do lie. Prepare you, for tomorrow you shall die. Watch all and pray. The hour is drawing near when you before the Almighty shall appear. Examine well yourselves. In time repent, that you may not to eternal flames be sent. And when St. Sepulchre's bell in the morning tolls, the Lord have mercy on your souls. This verse was spoken at midnight. In London's notorious Newgate Jail. As the clock struck twelve, the clerk from St. Sepulchre's Church stepped through an archway, entering a tunnel that led from the church to the prison, carrying the execution bell. Arriving at the cell of a condemned prisoner, he rang the bell twelve times, handed the convict a set of rosary beads, commanding them to pray for repentance. The following day, the prisoner was loaded onto a cart on the two-mile journey from Newgate to the execution site at Tyburn, where they were hanged in front of a baying mob. More than 50,000 people were executed at Tyburn's terrifying triple tree. My name is Mark Zakian, and I'm joined by my fellow Blue Badge guide, Anthony Robbins, known as Mr Londoner. And in this podcast, we'll tell the story of Newgate Jail. From a prisoner who inspired one of Britain's best-loved musicals to the fearsome ghost of a black dog. From the original Hannibal Lecters to a man for whom crime did pay and pay and pay. Stories from the prison nicknamed Hell on Earth. For 700 years, Newgate Jail was the darkest, dirtiest and most miserable dungeon in London. First built into a gatehouse in 1188 at London's Roman Wall. It was known as the Gateway to Hell. The prison was crammed full of the condemned. Its airs so foul, they infected the entire neighbourhood. Its dank cells so infested by lice and bedbugs that they crunched underfoot as people walked. The jail was divided into wards. The master's side. For those who could afford to pay for their own food and their accommodation. The common side. For those who were too poor to pay. Men and women were supposed to be held in separate wards, but mixed freely. And on arrival, prisoners were chained and led to the appropriate dungeon. Those sentenced to death were held in a cellar beneath the keeper's house. Essentially an open sewer lined with shackles. Everyone else was simply jammed into a cell. In the 1700s, 300 people were packed into two rooms no more than 14 foot wide. Hundreds of prisoners died in Newgate. Chained to the walls where they languished and starved. Or taken by the diseases that ran wild in the prison. Typhoid, plague, cholera. The bodies were just left to rot, decaying into the dirt. The dungeon so hot and depraved that doctors refused to enter. Food and drink had to be paid for. Prisoners who could afford to buy alcohol from the cellar or tap room were perpetually drunk. Because old Newgate was not there to reform or educate inmates. It was not even there to punish people. It was a hellish holding pen. Where inmates waited to be taken to the sessions. As trials were known at that time. The sessions house was directly connected to Newgate. And became known as the Old Bailey. Courts were held once a month. If you were fortunate, you were set free with a fine. Or sent to the pillory branded or transported to America or Australia. But for many, a stay in Newgate ended with hanging, burning or beheading. And if you could not get in front of the justices, you simply rotted away in the jail. 
700 years ago, as famine spread across England. The prisoners at Newgate were left to fend for themselves. Starving, they resorted to eating the only source of food available. The smallest and weakest inmates were the first victims. Killed and eaten by their cellmates. The jailers turned a blind eye. Then one day, a new prisoner was thrown in. A weak, young, scholarly man. Fresh meat to the desperate convicts. Who pounced and ate him. What they didn't know is that their lunch had been arrested for sorcery. Accused of casting spells to harm the king's subjects. That night, some of the prisoners were shocked to see the scholar still alive, wandering around the prison. And to their horror, the scholar began to transform, taking on the appearance of a large black dog that stalked the jail, making strange groans and cries as a creature in great pain and torment, whereupon a nightly fear grew amongst them that turned into a frenzy, and from a frenzy to desperation. Terrorised, the prisoners rioted, killing the guards and escaping, hoping to get far enough away that the black dog would never find them. But, one by one, the black dog hunted them down, ripping them apart. This story was first published in 1596. The Black Dog of Newgate by Luke Hutton. Hutton was a Newgate inmate. Not a common or garden jailbird. He'd studied at Cambridge. And according to some, he was the younger son of no less than the Archbishop of York. But on leaving Trinity College with no degree, he became a thief. Who was... So valiant that he feared not men, nor laws. When Highwayman Luke held up a stagecoat, he was sent to Newgate. The Black Dog ghost story was a sensation. Selling for three and a halfpenny to its gentle readers. A moralist entertainment written to frighten and thrill England's town-dwelling middle classes. One of the first tabloid stories of criminality and celebrity. Now, it's possible that during the famine, prisoners did resort to cannibalism. And we know that during just one year, in 1300, 62 prisoners died in the jail. As for Highwayman Luke, he was sent to the gallows. Leaving his gentle readers a poetic prisoner's lament. I am a poor prisoner condemned to die. My death each hour I do attend. Think on my words when I am gone. Be warned, young wantons. When on the ladder you shall me view, think I am nearer heaven than you. Oh, my name, it is Samuel, chimney sweep, chimney sweep. Oh, my name, it is Samuel, chimney sweep. London's poor were sometimes so desperate they would sell their children. One of the cruelest fates for these kids was to end up as an apprentice chimney sweep. Climbing boys were small enough to squeeze up a 14-foot flue using their elbows and knees to shimmy up a chimney pot. Hot, dirty work. Often forced to work naked, they frequently suffocated and died inside the chimney. Little Jack Hall was sold to a sweep. Born in a slum courtyard in the late 1600s. Age seven, his parents exchanged him for a guinea. Enough money to buy mum and dad food for a few months. Like many enslaved in this miserable life, Jack ran away. And started to make a living as a pickpocket. The Newgate calendar a record of the life of prison inmates, told Jack's story. 
Jack was an expert in breaking open houses, going on the footpad, shoplifting or pilfering, in particular by the drag, which is having a hook fastened to the end of a stick, with which they drag anything out of a shop window on a dark evening, and filing a cly, which is picking pockets of watches, money, books or handkerchiefs. To this end, Jack would haunt churches, fairs, markets, public assemblies and shows. Jack was caught. The first time, in 1692, he was whipped. In 1702, he was arrested for stealing luggage from a stagecoach. This got him branded on the cheek and imprisoned for two years. Out of jail, he was back on the rob, teaming up with fellow housebreakers Bunce and Lowe. Jack Hall, Stephen Bunce and Dick Lowe going upon an enterprise at Hackney about 12 at night by the help of short crows made a forcible entry into the house of one there, a baker whose journeyman tied neck and heels they threw into the kneading trough as well as the apprentice with him. Jack Hall stood sentry over them with a great old rusty sword which he found in the kitchen and swore that both their heads went off if they offered to stir or budge. In the meantime, Lowe and Bunce went up to Mr Clare's room, whom they found in bed with his wife, and tied and gagged the old folks without any consideration of their age. Finding not so much as they expected, they ungagged the old man to bring to a confession where he hoarded his money but extorted nothing out of him. Jack Hall took up in his arms the old man's granddaughter, about six years old, lying in a trundle bed by him, and said, Damn me, if I won't bake the child presently in a pie and eat it, if the old rogue will not be civil. These scaring words made Mr Clare beg heartily they should not hurt the child, and he would discover what he had, which was about £80. Then they bid the baker good night and commanded him to return their thanks. Hall and his companions were caught and sentenced to death. On the 17th of December, 1707, Jack was sent to Tyburn. Hanging days were a highlight in the London calendar, which by tradition took place on a Monday. The Sunday before, the condemned's friends would visit the death cell and present them with white caps, black ribbons and a buttonhole so that they might look their best for a hanging. On Monday morning, the Newgate procession would set out from the prison. On the two-mile route, down Oxford Street, to where Marble Arch stands today. The prisoners travelled in carts, led by the highwaymen, regarded as the aristocrats of the criminal fraternity, followed by thieves, murderers and rapists. Bringing up the rear were the traitors who were drawn on hurdles. The streets were crammed with spectators, usually drunk. The crowd took sides. Some shouted encouragement. Others abuse, frequently throwing objects. Dead cats being particularly favoured missiles. Bystanders offered to buy drinks for the condemned. The procession would stop at taverns on the route. Making one last stop for a drink before a prisoner was put back on the wagon. Which is probably where we get that expression from. It was a mercy for the prisoners to be drunk when they reached Tyburn. Because before 1760, there was no hangman's drop. And the condemned mostly died from strangulation. Taking 15 or 20 minutes. One enterprising woman set up stands at Tyburn. Called Mother Proctor's Pews, she charged up to £10 for the very best seats. The equivalent of thousands of pounds in today's money. Once the condemned died, 
there was chaos. People rushed at the body to collect the death sweat of the deceased prisoner. They believed the perspiration of executed criminals cured warts. And into their melee jumped the surgeon's beadles from hospitals that wanted the corpses for dissection. They often ended up fighting with the condemned's family, who were desperate to keep the body from the surgeon's scalpel. All of this death and chaos gave birth to the Cockney expression, gone west. When a prisoner was sent from the city in the east, west down to Tyburn. As for Jack Hall, his exploits made him a celebrity. His story written up in the scandal sheets churned out fast enough to be sold at the hanging. And a canny songwriter turned Jack's tale into a catchy little ditty. Imagine hearing a song about your hanging at your actual hanging. The Ballad of Jack Hall has been sung in pubs, clubs and taverns for generations. Known today as the Ballad of Sam Hall. A folk standard performed by artists such as Johnny Cash and the Dubliners. When I die, when I die, and my neck will pay for all when I die. My true name is so well known in the records at Newgate and the Old Bailey, relating to my particular conduct, that it's not to be expected I should set my name to this work. It is enough to tell you that my comrades knew me by the name of Mole Flanders. My mother was convicted of felony, pleaded her belly, and being found quick with child, was respited for about seven months, in which time, having brought me into the world, she was then transported to the plantations. I was born in such an unhappy place, my companions executed, and now you see me fettered here in Newgate. The words of jailbird adventurer Moll Flanders. Written by one of Newgate's most famous inmates, Daniel Defoe, who penned the eponymous novel from first-hand experience as a prisoner himself. In 1702, Defoe was a married businessman and father of eight children. He was also a passionate dissenter, printing satirical pamphlets demanding religious freedom, penning some 400,000 words a year. His investigative style has given him the title The Inventor of Modern Journalism. But when he published an anonymous satirical pamphlet called The Shortest Way with Dissenters, it infuriated the church. And the authorities put a £50 bounty on his head. Defoe went to ground, travelling at night, fending off anyone who seemed to recognise him, threatening one man who approached him with his sword. When an informer finally claimed the reward... Defoe was arrested and thrown into Newgate, where he paid for comfortable lodgings. When he was brought up in front of the Old Bailey to answer his charges, the justices included men who'd been satirised by Defoe's publications, notably the pious and corrupt City Recorder, who Defoe had parodied as a man who trades in justice and the souls of men and prostitutes them equally to gain and never hangs the rich nor saves the poor. Unsurprisingly, Defoe was found guilty and was sentenced to stand in the pillory three times and to be held in prison indefinitely. The pillory punished minor offenders by shaming them in public. The victim was pelted with rotten eggs and fruit, dead animals and every variety of junk and in some cases stones, saucepans and missiles that could maim and kill the victims. On each occasion... 
Defoe was pilloried for an hour at the busy Royal Exchange in Cornhill. But the punishment turned into a triumph. He had risked his life to write the truth, and people regarded him as a hero. And so the crowd threw flowers. While his friends sold onlookers copies of a hymn to the pillory, which he had composed for the occasion. Government politicians realised that Defoe was a useful ally. His fine was paid from Secret Service funds and he was released from Newgate. And he began publishing a regular newspaper supporting liberal causes. But his writings got him into trouble again. And he was returned to Newgate. For a second time, his patron bailed him out, even arranging for a pardon from Queen Anne. But time in jail showed Defoe that prisons were schools for thieves. People went to prison for being poor and they came out as criminals. He documented the misery of Newgate. The deplorable conditions of the female quarters. Basing his character of Moll Flanders on women he'd seen in jail. Women with no choices except theft and prostitution. In early 18th century London, one woman in ten worked as a prostitute. Moll Flanders was published in 1722. And it marked the birth of the English novel. Inspired by the dungeons of Newgate Jail. On the 14th of October 1724 at the Old Bailey Sessions, highwayman Joseph Blake, known as Blueskin, was indicted for breaking into the house of William Kneebone in the night time and stealing 108 yards of woolen cloth, value 36 guineas, and divers other goods. Mr Jonathan Wilde apprehended Blueskin and did bring him to prison at Newgate. At the assizes, the jury pronounced Blueskin guilty. The indictment, death. Blueskin, having been of service to Mr Wilde, pleaded him to beg the judge that the capital sentence be commuted to transportation. Being refused, the enraged Blueskin attempted to murder Mr Wilde, slashing his throat with a pocket knife. In the uproar, Mr Wilde collapsed to the floor and was born to a surgeon for treatment. The man, bleeding on the floor, held one of the highest positions in society. A self-made gent of respect and serious wealth. He was also the greatest crook in England. Vigilante and Georgian godfather gangster supreme, Jonathan Wilde. London's prince of thief-takers. Who had risen to fame and fortune by controlling every known criminal across the capital. Anything that was stolen made him money, one way or another. Overseeing his empire from his smart townhouse. Ironically, just opposite Newgate Prison. Blueskin was just another of his disposable pawns sacrificed to Wilde's double dealings as both cop and robber. Jonathan Wilde was born in Wolverhampton, the humble son of a buckle-maker. Drafted into the family trade, Wilde decided he had better things to do than bash out belts all day. And in 1708, he abandoned his wife and child and headed to London, where he quickly found himself owing money and was locked up in the Wood Street Compter, a debtor's prison. The only way out of a debtor's prison was to pay your creditors. Difficult when you have to pay a prison admission fee and a discharge fee to be released, as well as rent for your bed and board. But Wilde was given the liberty of the gate responsible for checking in new prisoners. And he met Mary Milliner, who made money by offering acts of kindness in the jail. Wilde said of Milliner, Compared with her experience in getting money from the rightful owners, 
I was but a child. In 1712, an amnesty was passed on prisoners of debt. Back at large, Wilde went into business with Mary Milliner. She was his buttock. He was her twang. The job of the buttock was to attract and distract a punter. The twang then whacked them on the head and the team robbed the victim. But Jonathan wanted more than just their purse. The jewel in the mugger's crown was a gentleman's pocketbook. Full of information to blackmail a man of reputation into handing over money. Payment for not informing the man's family of their dalliance with prostitute Mary. Wilde built a racket on theft, bribery and extortion. Rising from jailbird to pimp to Georgian gangland boss. He worked out how to run rackets without risking the noose. A thief would pass information to Wilde about stolen goods. And he would approach the owner and tell them... I knows where it is, sir. In a pawn shop of my acquaintance. I can arrange for it to be returned. For a consideration. Wilde's racket attracted the attention of Charles Hitchin, the Deputy Undermarshal of London. One of just two paid legal enforcers in the capital. This was in an era when there were no police. But Wilde knew that the Undermarshal had to pay commission for his title. £700 a year. And with a salary of £200 a year plus sixpence for every criminal he caught... Hitchin needed to arrest 20,000 criminals a year just to cover costs. So Wilde went into partnership with Hitchin. Expanding his criminal empire and awarding himself the exaggerated title... The Thief Taker General of Britain and Ireland. Wilde controlled London's thieves. No crime happened without him knowing about it. He arranged for their goods to be fenced and had them convicted if they stepped out of line. Wilde sent 67 of his former associates to the Tyburn Gallows, each one bringing him a bounty. But in 1725, Wilde made a fatal error. He got involved in a robbery and was arrested. Criminals of London who hated the thief-taker lined up to testify against him. Wilde appealed to the judges, making a grandstanding speech about all the felons he had brought to the law. But Wilde was simply too big for his boots. And the judges had hundreds of charges against him. On the day of his hanging, the crowds came to Newgate and tried to kill him. But the jailers managed to transport him to Tyburn. After he was hanged, Wilde's body was taken by surgeons and dissected. To this day, his skull is exhibited in London's Royal College of Surgeons. In 1785, in Housditch, baby Isaac, known as Ikey, was born the ninth and eldest child of Henry Solomon. For many East End Jews, life was hard. Ikey's father had several brushes with the law. And like father, like son, the young Solomon lived a life on the edge of crime. Young Ikey opened a pawn shop. Not an unrespectable trade. But it became a front for fencing stolen goods. Ikey bought from criminals and sold on their booty. By the early 1800s, Ikey was the best-known fence in London. In 1807, he married Anne at the Great Synagogue. His new wife was the daughter of a coachmaster from Aldgate. His father-in-law's coach-driving skills would turn out to be a lifesaver. As well as flogging stolen goods, Solomon was not above a bit of direct theft. And in 1810, he and a partner in crime were caught stealing a pocketbook and £40 in banknotes 
outside Westminster Hall. The location of Parliament. Not the wisest place to thieve, as it would have been well guarded. The authorities chased the pair inside the hall. Solomon's accomplice almost got rid of the evidence by swallowing the banknotes. But the pocketbook was inedible. The pair were tried at the Old Bailey. Ikey sentenced to be transported to the penal colony of Australia. For the rest of his life. But Solomon didn't get to Australia. Held instead at Chatham on a prison ship. Four years later, he was back in the East End working as a pawnbroker. Once again, fencing stolen goods. It took seven years for the police to finally catch Ikey in the act. Charging him with receiving six watches, 31 yards of woolen cloth, 17 shawls and several ladies' caps. Awaiting trial, Ikey was held at Newgate. Outside, the pamphleteers were selling copies of his story. Exaggerated accounts of his criminal activity sold very well. Solomon pulled a legal stunt that meant that he had to be taken to appear in court. On the return to Newgate, guards flagged down a hackney carriage to take Ikey back to jail. Unknown to them, driven by Solomon's father-in-law. And when the carriage took a detour through Petticoat Lane, Ikey's friends overpowered the prison guards and released him. Solomon's escape was all over the tabloids. Now a notorious and easily identified celebrity, he left his wife and family behind in England and headed for New York. Back in the East End, wife Anne started working as a fence. She was arrested and transported to Australia, taking her children with her. And when Ikey read newspaper reports of her sentence, he decided to go to Australia to be reunited with his family, travelling under the name Mr Slowman. Solomon opened a tobacco store the problem was that so many of his criminal friends had been transported to Australia that they recognised him. News spread and an arrest warrant arrived in London. And Ikey was sent back home to be tried. At the Old Bailey, he was found guilty on two counts of receiving stolen goods. And sentenced to transportation back to Hobart, Australia for 14 years. Arriving in November 1831, he was sent to Richmond Jail. Four years later, the authorities granted Solomon leave of prison. Solomon died in 1850 and was buried in the Jewish cemetery in Hobart. Ikey was famous for escaping Newgate. So famous that Charles Dickens probably based Fagin from Oliver Twist on Ikey Solomon. Several other authors have novelised Ikey. But rather than being a Jack Shepard or a Sam Hall-style folk hero, Ikey's depictions in literature have often been anti-Semitic. But for many... Ike is the essence of East End Chutzpah. From the prison door, a man in black appeared on the scaffold and was silently followed by four more dark figures. He bore his punishment like a man and walked very firmly. His arms were tied in front of him. He opened his hands in a helpless kind of way and clasped them together. He turned his head and looked about him with a wild, imploring look. His mouth was contracted into a sort of pitiful smile. He went and placed himself at once under the beam. The tall, grave man in black twisted him round swiftly in the other direction and, drawing from his pocket a nightcap, pulled it tight over the head and face. I am not ashamed to say that I could look no more, but shut my eyes as the last dreadful act was going on which sent this wretched, guilty soul into the presence of God. 
I feel myself ashamed and degraded at the curiosity which took me to that brutal sight. The words of William Makepeace Thackeray. Who, with his friend and fellow writer, Charles Dickens, attended a public hanging outside Newgate Prison in the summer of 1840. Joining a crowd of around 40,000 who had come to see the execution of a convicted murderer. After decades of chaos and disorder at the Newgate processions, in 1783 executions were moved from Tyburn to the prison. And for the next 20 years, nearly one person a week was hanged outside the jail. These numbers boosted by the bloody code, which made over 300 crimes punishable by death during the early 1800s. Including offences such as impersonating a Chelsea pensioner, damaging Westminster Bridge, being out at night with a blackened face, and being an unmarried mother concealing a stillborn child. Forging coins were still classified as treason. And three women were burned at the stake at Newgate for coining. Mercifully, they were hanged until dead before being put to the flame. In 1820, a crowd of thousands witnessed the Newgate hanging of four anti-government conspirators. Whose bodies were taken down from the noose. And an unidentified person in a black mask decapitated them with a small knife. Each head held aloft declared to be that of a traitor. Distaste for this gruesome spectacle grew. In 1863, you could take the newly built London Underground and travel to a medieval-style execution. The last public execution at Newgate took place in 1868. Irish Republican Michael Barrett, allegedly involved in an explosion that killed 12, was convicted by dubious testimony. A crowd of 2,000 booed, jeered and sang Rule Britannia and Champagne Charlie as his body dropped. But the public campaigns by the likes of Dickens and Thackeray won the day and the hangings were moved inside Newgate. The old prison continued to be a mix of a jail and a house of horrors. One juror recounted a visit to Newgate in the 1880s. First, we were shown casts of the heads of murderers taken after execution and in some instances bearing a terrible tell-tale depression in the neck. Next we examined the fastings by which Angman pinioned the doomed man. Here too were the irons in which prisoners were formerly confined, including a set once worn by Jack Shepherd, but in spite of which he managed to escape. We visited a room through which, in the days of public executions, the prisoner passed to the gallows, then we were taken to the chapel, so contrived that prisoners see only the clergyman. And to the condemned cell, dim and dreary enough to appall the stoutest heart. We passed through the bleak passage, paved with flagstones, beneath which the bodies of murderers are buried in quicklime and where their initials are rudely scratched upon the wall. Lastly, we saw... The place of execution, where everything is in such readiness that, as the warder informed us, in five minutes from receiving the order, a man could be hanged. A strong chair attracted our attention. This, we were told, was used when the convict was too faint to stand. And as the bolt was drawn, the chair and its occupants crashed down together into the pit below. We gladly left this dismal scene, 
and departed from the sunless prison. The sun finally set on Newgate in 1902 when the prison was closed. And it was demolished in 1903. Today, the Old Bailey stands on the prison site. A small blue plaque on the courthouse wall, the only reminder of the prison known as Hell on Earth. Oh, my name is Sam Hall. Chimney sweet, chimney sweet. This Extraordinary Stories of Britain podcast was written and produced by Mark Zakian and featured Anthony Robbins with additional voices and songs by Tony Lewis. To hear more, visit www.storiesofbritain.com where you can subscribe to hear more podcasts. When I die.